Go. Thank you, John. Well, this morning, this is the last class of a, I don't know, 20-week, 21, 22-week series that we've been in. And I hope that as a result of having been in this class, and some of you maybe have been in all of them, and I think most of you have gotten most of them, and perhaps if you've missed one or two or three of them, you would get the CDs or whatever. What I'm going to do, I'm going to put all these classes, the written notes that I actually use, my own notes, I'm going to, we're going to reproduce them in a little booklet form, and I think it's about 30 pages front and back, so it's like 60 pages, you know, but 30 sheets of paper. And uh, if any of you are interested in getting a set of that, we'll, you know, get a sign-up sheet or something, and I'll be glad to, uh, we'll be glad to give those to you. We'll have to put them in some kind of a binder or whatever. Just for your information, if you want them, if you want to use them in the future or whatever. But I think my greatest desire, and I think the Lord's desire here, I don't think I'm incompatible with the Lord's desire on this, is that as a result of this class, and any class we teach, but especially some emphasize this issue more than others. I'm hoping that we leave this particular series with a much greater and deeper understanding and appreciation of the comprehensiveness of God's Word. That God's Word, which begins in Genesis 1 and ends in Revelation 22, is one Word. And that absolutely that which is said and done in the Old Testament is as significant as that which is said and done in the New Testament. That we don't value one over the other. That we don't make one the source of more study than the other. That we take the entire word of God as a comprehensive revelation of who this God is and how he is and who we are to him and what he has done in creating us and what he does in recreating us. Remember, regeneration, regenesing us in Christ. And so hopefully... If there's been any attitude or thought in your mind, well, the Old Testament or this and that, and it's really not, hopefully all of that is obliterated and we walk onto the ground of our Bible, the Scriptures, and see all of the Scriptures as equally God-breathed. Remember, Paul tells Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And we see all our Scripture, all the Scriptures that way. All the Scriptures as coming from God, being about God, and being for God's glory. So hopefully this 20-week or 22 or 3-week series has done that for us and has allowed us to, when we read any portion of the Bible, to be able to connect it within the total context of what God is doing. Amen? So I'm hoping that, that Holy, the Holy Spirit has done that. <clears throat> this morning we're going to conclude and. I just, I wasn't going to do this until several weeks ago. I was going to end with the festivals. I just felt the Holy Spirit say, look, go to Hebrews and let's show from Hebrews, from the New Testament scripture, what I have been teaching, what is being taught in here over the last period of time. And so last week, remember, we took Hebrews and we said Hebrews is that, it's really a, uh, uh, an exposition or a sermon, but we call it a book, the book of Hebrews. And it's an exposition to the church, which is 
basically mostly Hebrew or Jewish believers, or at least there, are a, there is a significant number of people of Judaism in that church or in those churches. And the problem is that they are being persecuted. It's like an ISIS kind of a thing. Rome is dealing with them as ISIS we see dealing with issues today. And so the temptation is, if we weren't believers, if we weren't Christians, we, weren't, we wouldn't be persecuted like this because the fact of the matter is the Christians at that time were persecuted much more vehemently than the Jewish people were for various reasons. We're going to teach some church history, I think, next semester at a particular time, and we'll see some of this. I, I could go back to my Judaism it's still God, it's still God's word, you know, and whatever. And, and I could go back there and get out of all this attack and maybe protect my family. And so the writer is warning them, don't do that. Because if you do that, you're leaving the fulfillment, the light, the revelation, the completion of what all the Old Testament has been moving toward. And you're going back into a system that God has ended as to its functional purpose on earth to reveal himself. Now God's functional people on earth to reveal him is no longer the Jewish people. It's the Christian people, whether they are Jewish and Gentile together. And he says, don't go back. So remember, he began to explain why. And last week, what did we see? He takes the person of Christ and the work of Christ, and he says, here are the two main reasons why you don't go back. And here is what God is showing us, that the person of Christ and the work of Christ. Christ is our high priest. He is better than the Old Testament priesthood. Why? Because as the high priest, he is the son of God. He is divine, and no Old Testament high priest was divine. And not only is he superior in his person as the son of God, the divine son of God, but he's also div uh, superior in his person as the incarnate son, the son of man. Remember Jesus Christ. And so he's superior not only because he's the son of God, because he is also the son of man. He is superior to Moses. Why? <clears throat> because Moses, you remember in chapter 3, we just did a little bit of this last week. We're not making an extensive uh, explication of Hebrews. Moses was the builder of the house. Well, why is Christ greater? Because Christ is the house. What Moses was building was emblematic of him who was coming, would, who would be the reality of what Moses was doing in a shadow. And so when Christ comes, he is the house. And once the house is there, you're not worried about the shadow anymore. And so this morning we get into the second half of the exposition. And Christ is not only superior in his person, he's also superior in his work or in his ministry. That's where we are today. So the author of Hebrews now shows that Jesus Christ is our high priest in his high priestly work is superior to the old, high, old Testament high priest. He is superior in two ways. He is superior because Jesus' work is a finished work. It's a completed work which the priests of the Old Testament never had their work completed, which we'll see. And it's not only a completed work as to the inauguration of salvation, but then it is a continuing work as to the development or maturity of what that salvation is in us or our sanctification. And so 
the work of Christ is superior as to its finished work and as to its continuing work. It's superior to the Old Testament revelation. The finished work of Christ was in his first advent. You remember what first advent means, his first appearing when he was born of Mary. His first advent as God's Messiah son, becoming our representative who took our sin to the cross for our justification, going to the cross, paying the full price for all of our sin so that we could be forgiven by God and be declared as not guilty so that having been declared as not guilty, being justified, Romans 5.1, having been justified, therefore now God can adopt us into his family. God does not adopt unforgiven, impure, wrong, condemned people as sons. He first changes their spiritual status. He changes their legal status from being impure, condemned, sinful, and all of that. And he changes that by forgiving them, by calling them not guilty, by placing upon them or giving them the very righteousness of his own son, clothing them with Christ. And now that we have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, we can now enter into a righteous relationship with this righteous God. Because you see, we cannot become joined together in this kind of fellowship that God desires for us as unrighteous people because unrighteousness and righteousness do not mix like oil and water. We had to be changed. So in the first advent of Christ, Jesus takes care of all of this at the cross. It's a finished work. It's a finished, never to be done again. The blood of Jesus is never to be shed again. There is no such thing as the continuing shedding of the blood or the continuing sacrifice. If that's the case, the work of Jesus was not, in fact, finished. And if it wasn't finished, then he made a big mistake in John 19.30. He should have said, it's almost finished, and we're going to continue this thing as long as until I come back, and we're going to try to finish it as best we can. That's not what he said. He declared what? It's finished. It's finished. As to the necessary work of paying for sin so that my people can be justified to receive my righteousness in order to be adopted as children of the loving Father. It's finished. Everything has been completed. Jesus' continuing work so that's the finished work. You understand what the finished work is. The continuing work is his ongoing work by the Spirit to save, sanctify, and secure us to the end. So now the finished work of Jesus at the cross is completed. Jesus rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven. You remember, he is crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. He's given all authority in heaven and earth. He returns for 40 days with his disciples. At the end of that period, he tells them, I have been glorified. How do we know he's been glorified, Steve? He's been given all authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to a man. Only a man who sits on the throne can receive all authority. And the one who sits on the throne has been glorified. He has been glorified. He is the glorified son of God. 
but he appears to his disciples not in this glorified state as John sees him in Revelation, but in a way that his people can receive him and communicate with him. Because you remember what happens to John when he sees him in heaven. He falls down as a dead man. And so Jesus is, if you would, hiding his essential glory when he returns to be with his people for that 40 days. It would have knocked them down. They couldn't have gotten near him. And now the finished work of Jesus, the work of Jesus has been completed. What does he say? Wait in Jerusalem to receive the promise because that which I've completed now will continue. That which I've completed will what? Continue. Now the work that I have done on the cross, now it will begin to be applied to the people's hearts and lives and it will begin to be amplified, sanctified, remember, secured all the way to the end. And that's the continuing work of Christ. So let me get going on this to try to do it in a way that we can finish. The finished work of Christ is superior to the Old Testament priesthood. Hebrews 4.14 to 10.18. That's that section that deals with that. By the way, whoever, and I don't remember his name, divided up our Bible years and years ago, made a few mistakes. He should not have put this particular section in the middle of chapter 4. This should have been a brand new section, but that's the way it is today. So 4.14 to 10.18 is the next section of the finished work of Christ. The author now explains why Jesus' priestly work for us is superior. Why is it superior? So let's look at our Bibles in Hebrews chapter 4. Why is it superior? Verses 14 to 16, and I think I'm going to be able to get through most of this by reading it today so we can hear it. And when you hear this, listen with an ear to what we have already said about the Old Testament priesthood in relation now to the New Testament high priest. Of, um, high priestly uh, finished work of Christ. Verses 14 to 16, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest. Why is he great? He's eternally the son of God and he is eternally now the son of man. Amen? Why is he great? He is superior in his person as to the, his divinity and as to his incarnation. Remember that? So why does the author call him great? Remember what he's already said about him. He's great in relation to those facts about his person. Again, sometimes when we read the word, we forget which is already there. We have to remember what we're reading and bring in what we've already talked about. So since this, we have a high, great, great high priest. He's great because of what I've already been telling you, he said, in the first three and a half chapters or so. Who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, therefore let us hold fast our confession or our confidence. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without any sin or defect or default or disobedience. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and to help in time of need. So why is he superior? The finished work of our high priest has given us what the Old Testament people could not and did never have. We have confidence to approach God in a way of a forgiven and received, accepted, and adopted people. The Old Testament did not, people did not have this. We can approach now the throne of grace in order what? To receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. They didn't have this. 
They had to go through uh, intermediaries. They had to make sure that all the sacrifices were correct. They had to be very concerned about all the external activities of the sacrificial system. All, everything was in place and everything, the high priest, everything had to be just right in order for them to approach. And they didn't approach. The priest approached on their behalf. Yes, there were some folks who met with God person to person, but in mass, the people of God were always over here and God was always over there. He was always on the altar and the people were here. And what happened was that the priest on the altar did the things pertaining to God and he, in his sacrifices and his ceremonies, if you would, created the opportunity for God and the people to have communion, but it was always a distant communion. Does that make ring any bell to some of you who have been in churches that God was over there and it all depended upon what one man did at a particular ceremony so that God would some kind of way be with you? Amen? Amen. That's over. It's over. Any system that resurrects that is a demonic system. Why? Because it is created by Satan in order to keep a separation between us and the God who is with us and in us. Amen? Amen. It is over. Why can we have such boldness and confidence? Why? Our high priest is the sinless son of God who has gone into the heavens for us to represent us before God himself. Our God is no longer in a box in an altar. Remember the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant? If you would, and I don't want to be crass about this, God was in a box on an altar in a very small place, and he could only be accessed once a year, and then he could only be seen from a distance and understood and heard from a distance. He did not dwell within his people. There were only a few instances where he did this in certain people. But in mass, the people of God were always a separated people. He was with them before and after and among them, but never within them. Now the church of Jesus Christ, we have our God where? Before us and behind us, above us and next to us, but mostly where? Inside of us. Verses five, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. In these verses, the author is going to remind us of the reasons why Jesus' work of, as a priest is superior to the Aaronic. Aaronic, remember Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood. We're going to get a uh, delineation, three different things of why the Jesus' priestly work is superior. So let's look at 1 through 4. I'm going to just give you the uh, outline and then read it. Jesus was called by God to represent the needs of the people, and as a man, he was also subject to the weaknesses of the flesh. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Remember chapter 5, verse 1. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Why? Since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obliged or obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sin as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for him, but only when they are called by God, just as Aaron was. So you see, Aaron and we are similar in this issue of, of sin, of weaknesses, whatever. Aaron has to make a sacrifice for himself first, and then that sacrifice has to be accepted. And then once that is accepted, Aaron can go back into the Holy of Holies with a sacrifice for the people. In verses 5 to 7, 
God declared Jesus to be the son, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And you remember, well, we won't go into Genesis. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him or by God who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You remember that at his baptism in Matthew, 7, um, Matthew 3 and Luke 3? And he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see that in the Psalms. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up loud prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So Jesus is that priest after the order of Melchizedek. Again, there's a whole lot there that we did not deal with and I don't want to deal with because it would take us down another whole 10 weeks. Maybe at another time we can do that. Verses 8 to 10, as a result of his submission and obedience... Jesus has become the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So what the author of Hebrews is telling you is the Old Testament has been telling us that there's coming a son, a Messiah, a man who will be after the order of Melchizedek, who is that strange fellow. You remember in Genesis 14, remember in What's his name? Abraham meets this man after the king, the, uh, the, uh, the, the warfare against Sodom and Gomorrah and all of that. You remember to go capture Lot. And Abraham is coming back and he sees this king and this king is called Melchizedek. He is priest of the El Elyon, God Most High. He is the king of Salem. Remember the king of Salem which becomes the city of Jerusalem, the king of peace. His name is not, his uh, beginning of days and ending of days is not recorded. It doesn't mean that he's an eternal man. It just means that his days to begin and end are not recorded. Why? Because you see, what God was doing in that was showing that when Abraham gives a tithe to this man, he submits himself to this man as one who is superior to him. This was God's way of saying that the Jewish people, the whole sacrificial system, the entire understanding of what it was in Judaism was going to be submitted to this man and fulfilled in this one who would be after the same order of Melchizedek. It was a picture of him who was to come of the same kind of order, one who had no beginning of days and one who has no ending of days, the eternal son. That's how that works. That's what the Bible is telling us in that way. Following this instruction, remember, the author then warns against falling away from trusting in the priestly work of Christ by reminding them that he has become a high priest forever. So the author says, don't fall away. Stay with what God is doing. You understand why he's telling them this? Because if you fall away or if you go back to another place, where are you going? And there are five warnings in here. Let me just say this quickly about that. We taught Hebrews in here before. There are five warnings. Each warning is based in this issue of being tempted to apostatize. What does that mean? It means to leave the ground of trusting in Christ as our Savior and stepping on to another ground as the way of our salvation. Do we get that? You understand the basis of that. It doesn't mean because I had a question about God's goodness or I sinned last night and now I'm trying to repent and hope to God I'm not thrown out of heaven. It's not about those kinds of things. It is that basic decision. I am no longer going to trust Christ for whatever reason. I am going to step over here and untrust Christ. Now, the question is, 
Can we do that? Well, the Bible doesn't say that we cannot do it. The Bible just says continue in Christ. Amen? There's no word which says, but you can't do that in that. It doesn't say that. He does say this, but we think or hope better things of you. But it never says you cannot do it. So let's be careful to say, no, once you're saved, you cannot. I, it doesn't say that. It says you're saved by grace through faith and you're maintained by grace through faith to the end. But you must continue to walk by grace, in the grace of God, by faith. And it is God who is at work in you. Remember in Philippians 2.13, we understand that. But there are also these warnings. These are real warnings. Any person who takes a step purposely and understandably out of Christ and puts himself into another system, any person who takes unto himself, we've been studying Galatians, a, a way of salvation such as circumcision in Galatians, I have to have this or I have to do this or whatever in order to be saved, to put any work on the same level of the work of Christ, any person who does that purposely and deliberately, understanding that's what you're doing, not inadvertently and ignorantly, but purposely, that person is severed from grace, is fallen rather from Christ, is severed from grace. That person no longer is in the community of God. Now, what does that mean about eternal security and whatever? God keeps us eternally secure. But you see, he saves us by grace. We're saved. Right, Lester? But through the means of our faith, which is a gift of God that is operating in me with which I must cooperate. I must receive and cooperate with it. So my salvation is not completely devoid of me. It is completely won at the cross and secured by Christ, and it is given to me, but mine is a response of faith. The same thing to walk. I must continue to walk by faith. Faith what? In the basis of Christ being the Lord and Savior of my life. Amen? So that is a, it, it, it is the way the Bible teaches. We need to be very careful that once we're saved, it doesn't matter very much what we do. That is not a biblical teaching. But at the same time, we don't teach, oh, you sin, therefore you're going to hell if you don't say it this three ways in order. We don't teach that because we don't believe that either. Is everybody okay with all that? I know there will be a thousand questions, but just wanted to move along on that. Chap verse, chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 1, all the way through the end of uh, chapter 10, 18. In that big section, the author proceeds to explain the reason why the finished work of our high priest is superior. Why? Because he is the eternal priest. In th that big section, Melchizedek was an Old Testament priest who foreshadowed the priesthood of Christ. Remember, we talked about that in 7, 1 through 3. I'm just summarizing some of this. I would hope that you would go back and look at it and read it and get that understanding. Melchizedek's priesthood was superior to the priesthood of Aaron. Why? Why was Melchizedek a superior priest of Aaron? Because you see, when Gen what's this man's name? Abraham. When Abraham gave Melchizedek a tithe, and this is why the tithe is still so important. When Abraham gave Melchizedek the tithe, God had put in Abraham's heart. He didn't say, hey, remember, you've got to have a tithe. He puts it in his heart. There is an appropriate way to honor, trust, thank, obey, 
be committed to God. And one of the primary ways within that way is in our tithes. A tithe. It's a tithe. You know, today, if you're in the class and you're not tithing, you don't know what you're more missing. You don't know what you're missing. You haven't experienced some of the greater blessings and freedom of God in giving, in running up against walls of finances and economic security that you can't handle in the natural. But you say, my God is my financier. He is my broker. Amen? And I'm going to declare him as my broker, my financier, if you would, by giving him what he has said to give him. Why? Not because he needs it, but because we need to give it. It's our need. So Abram gives a tithe to this man Melchizedek. And in doing so, he is acknowledging that Melchizedek is greater than he or than Abraham is. You understand that? Now, when he does that, where is Aaron? Where are the Levites? Where is the priesthood? It's in the loins of Abraham. Remember, they haven't been born yet. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then all these, these sons are the sons of Jacob. So we have a few generations to come. And then you have 400 some odd more years until Aaron is born. So they're all collected into Abraham. So when Abraham is acknowledging the superiority and the priesthood superiority of Melchizedek, the Bible says, and God is saying, I am showing you that the priesthood of Aaron is submitting to the priesthood of Melchizedek. Therefore, Melchizedek is a greater priest representing the priesthood of my son. See, that's how that works. That's what God is doing there. That's a very quick explanation, by the way. Therefore, the priesthood of Christ is superior, being of the same order. Listen to this verse. Where is 725 in here? Let me, sometimes I can't find my verses in here very well. Where is 725? Here it is. Consequently, he, the priest that we have, is able to save to the uttermost. Now, did you understand what I just said a little bit ago about pursuing to the end does not nullify the uttermost? He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he continually or always lives to make intercession for them. We have a priest. Unlike the Old Testament priests who died and then we had to get another one and then he died, we had to get another one and he died and we had to get another one. We have a priest who has gone into the heavenly holy of holies whose ministry of the shedding of the blood has been accepted by the eternal justice of God Almighty. And this priest has been raised again as the eternal God-man the eternal incarnation, and has been raised to the throne of God, sitting at the right hand of God the Father as our eternal priest, one who ever represents us in himself so that as long as there is a man sitting in the throne of God, we are there in him because of him. Amen? 
and he ever makes intercession. What does that mean? He ever represents us in our needs and in our weaknesses and in God's purpose. He is continually doing that before God Almighty himself, who then sends the Holy Spirit and is ministering into our lives according to the eternal intercession of our high priest at the right hand of the Father. See, that's what's going on. It's not a picture of Jesus kneeling at the throne. Oh, God, please help Jane. Please help Buddy. No, that's not it. This is the victorious man who has overcome all the issues of sin, Satan, hell, death, and everything else in the fall, and who has triumphed over all of them and has given us this new creation and who is ever interceding, representing us, so that as God sees him and relates to Jesus, this eternal high priest. He is seeing and relating to us. And as long as God the Father loves this eternal man, he is loving us with the same love, John 17, 26. And as God is favoring and ministering to us, and pouring out to us. Why is he doing it? Because his son sits at the right hand. As a man. There is a man who governs the universe today. And one day in his return, we are going to rule and reign with him. Amen? As his co-heirs. As Adam and Eve and their progeny were to do thus fulfilling what God had created Adam and Eve to do, but in a far superior and far more inclusive way in all of the cosmos. This is big. This is big. The priesthood of Christ is superior to the old covenant priesthood in that Christ entered into the heavenly tabernacle with his own blood. Now look, I'm not going to read chapter 9, 1 to 10, 18, but I implore you, Read chapter 9, verse 1 to 10, 18, because it talks about the eternal consequences and activity of this high priest. As the earthly priest would take the sacrifice, remember at the brazen altar, and slay the animal, and the blood was poured into a golden bowl. Remember, we've talked about that on the Day of Atonement. Remember that? And he would take the golden bowl, already having made sacrifice for his own sin, he goes into the Holy of Holies with this golden bowl of blood. And with his finger, he what? Seven times against the mercy seat. Remember that? The blood is shed. How do we know it's accepted by God on behalf of our forgiveness? The priest returns. He comes out. If it weren't accepted, he would have been in there dead, and they would have had to pull him out with a rope. Coming out proved that what he did in there, in that place that is not seen by man, that is that holy dwelling place of God himself upon the earth. When he comes out, God, he shows us God has accepted the sacrifice. That's when he would come out and then he would do, he would bless the people. The priest would put on his clothing again. Remember, he has this linen thing on, but then he would put all his vestments back on and he would come out. He would come out of the tabernacle and when the people saw him coming out, they could hear the bells and they saw him come out. They uproared in great celebration because one more year, our sins have been put away for another year and God is with us for another year. And the priest would bless the people. 
So what happens on the day of resurrection? Jesus comes forth. But chapter 9 tells you what happened when Jesus, before Jesus came forth. When he died, he went to the Father, remember? And in some way, in a mystery, he takes the blood of the everlasting covenant in the eternal sanctuary, the Bible says, not made with hands. In other words, God's sanctuary that is pictured in the Holy of Holies. And in some mysterious way, I don't know, God accepts this on behalf of all the people who are represented in Christ when he dies. Galatians 2.20. What does it say? I have been crucified with Christ. Now, when Jesus died spiritually, where were we? We were there. Anton, you were there. We were there. When Jesus took the blood of the covenant into the holy presence of God Almighty himself, where were we? We were represented in him. When God received that blood as the atoning sacrifice for sin, whose sin are we talking about? Our sin because he had none on his own behalf. When he rose from the dead, where were we? We were there rising in Christ. It is a picture of our justification. He died for our sin, rose for our justification, Romans 4.25. We were there. Then the Holy Spirit, you remember, is sent into the earth. And what happens on the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit begins to bring the reality and the actuality and the fruition of what happened in that sanctuary spiritually to us in a real viable way when each one of us were born into the kingdom of God by the work of the Spirit. Amen? But we were there. You see, this didn't begin in us when we got saved. When we, quote, got saved, that's when we came into the reality of it in an earthly and timely way. You understand that? That means this, that every child of God whom God has foreknown, and he has foreknown all of them. In other words, in his own heart and mind, he has people that he has, he has created or has in his own mind that he will create in a time function. You see, Cliff, you were in the mind and heart of God before you were born. And he has all these people. And these people would be born at certain times and live in certain places. But the Holy Spirit has been given the list. And I'm checking it off one at a time. Alice, gotcha. John, gotcha. You know, each one of us, gotcha, gotcha. And he's going down the list. And no matter where the person is, no matter how the person's living, the Holy Spirit is going throughout the world over the centuries, checking the list. James, gotcha. Mike, gotcha. Cynthia, gotcha. Putting you in there, putting you in there. In other words, bringing to you this birth that Jesus has signed the certificate of your birth in his blood at the cross and God has stamped it as approved in the heavens. So he's bringing it to you, Annette. Gotcha. And Jesus is not going to return until when? Or don't tell me about wars and rumors of wars. I know that, but that's not the real issue. Don't tell me whether we're going to have a 
200 million man army from China or this and that's going to happen or the Republicans are going to win or the Democrats and then certainly the end's going to happen. That's not what's happening. Here's when the end comes. The last person on the list. Check it. The books are closed. The doors are closed. The end of God's work upon the earth of bringing his people into the kingdom has finished. Now Jesus can return and put it all into place. That's what we're waiting for. The last person on the list <clears throat> to be checked off. And once that happens, then Jesus comes. So don't say, and I know there are a lot of natural things that were going on in relation to that, but here's the issue. The last person to be saved. That, what does that mean? No person who is God's person will not make the list be checked off. It's not happening. So don't worry about those people over there. Don't know this, that, and the other thing. Wherever God has put his people, he will get to them by the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. That's right. Now, we are to work the vineyards, and we are to go out there and proclaim the gospel, and we are to shake the trees and all of that. Why? Because God would use us as those proclaimers of the gospel. But he will save his people. Just to finish up quickly, Christ is superior in, as to his continuing work by the Spirit, chapter 10, 19 to the end. Now that Christ, our high priest, has entered into the holy place and has returned having his sacrifice accepted by God, we can have confidence to do what no Jew could ever do. We can now enter into the holy place of God's presence with confidence. They would have died on the spot. 10, 18 to 25, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter in the holy places, remember, the holy of holies. How many of you grew up Catholic? What would you say if I said, hey, we're in the, this beautiful St. Louis Cathedral, wherever. Hey, let's run up on the altar and let's play around on the altar. How many of you still feel, I don't know if I want to do that. How many of you still feel that? You're like, oh, you know, let's, let's open that door and see what's in there. <laughs> you can and it doesn't matter. But you see, think how the Jewish person must have felt. Going into the Holy of Holies. <laughs> Are you kidding? Yes. This is the truth. We have access now. That box is no longer closed to us. It's been rent, remember? Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence by the blood of Jesus to enter, by the new and living way that he opened through us, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. His flesh was torn, you remember. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, a full assurance of faith with our hearts, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. You see all the, the labor washing and the sprinkling of the blood. You see all of those illusions and those symbols in there. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and the good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching, the day of the Lord's return. And so he warns them against, remember, the apostasy and the falling away in the next verses. And then he gives them the example in chapter 11 of all the faith, the whole hallmark of faith. Remember that in chapter 11. Then he explains what our faith response to suffering is going to look like because in this world we will suffer. Why? Because God has chosen that through these kinds of things, the manifestation of his greatness of grace, 
over the sufferings of sin and the deteriorating effects of sin and all the issues of sin is always shown greater than sin. Remember Romans 5.20, where sin abounds, all of its consequences, where sin abounds what? Grace much more abundantly abounds. So what does it look like? In chapter 12, verses 14 to 17, rather than being overcome by their sufferings, they are to minister to one another's needs. What is it to look like in 18 to 24? Their faith is to, pre is to preserve because of the greater benefit they have in the new covenant, the presence of the living God. And then after a final warning in chapter 13, 1 to 6, the proof of their faith is demonstrated in the way they relate to one another. Ah, the way they relate to one another. Verses 7 and 19, their faith is to be grounded in doctrine through godly leadership. Amen. Amen. This is who we are because of our great high priest. And in verse 8, I think it's 8, eight don't want you to miss this, and I don't have it in your notes, but I think it's verse 8. Somebody, I'm chapter 8, verse 1. Somebody can look. We have such a high priest. Does it say that in chapter 1 of verse 8? I'm sorry, chapter 8 of verse 1? Yes. Because we have such a high priest. Yes. When you read that, don't read it like this. We have such a high priest. Read it like this. We have such a high priest. You can hear him saying, we have such, such a high priest. Amen. Next week we'll be taking off. There'll be a time of prayer. And then for the next two weeks after that, the 6th and the 13th, Frank will be teaching in here. And then on the 20th, Jason will be coming in to teach. Thank you so much. Thank you.